This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 340. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by producer extraordinaire, Matthew Marister. Hey, glad to be here, especially for uh, for this episode. It's going to be a good one. Absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to talking talking about it with you. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, today we're going to be talking about surviving mass shooting. And maybe along the way, we'll, we'll, we'll bust some myths too, because uh, lately I've been on a kick about busting myths. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we'll talk about some some things relating to uh, to mass shootings, and uh, maybe some of the myths that surround those. And the goal here is by by the end of the episode, we got to we got to be careful, got to watch our time because uh, you've got an appointment coming up here uh, pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, we want to stick under that uh, hour mark for sure for for our people, uh, so they don't get bored listening to us talk too much. <laughs> um, sorry, <laughs> that's a little something for Luke. <laughs> Luke, you know who you are, brother. Um, so today, again, mass shootings, it's on people's minds. We recently saw two really horrific ones in sh- very, very short order, uh, less than 20, 24 hours apart. Uh, we're going to break some of that down. We're going to talk about it. We want you to be able to be a little more prepared how to handle yourself in a situa- situation like that should it happen to you. But first, today's episode made possible by our new Fighting From Cover video course launching this week. In fact, officially, it'll go up for sale tomorrow. But I would just encourage you to learn a little more about it and some of the content that's in this course. In fact, the content in this course has a lot of direct application to the topic of the podcast today, meaning that if you are in an active shooting event, Use of cover could become a very critical factor to whether you are able to prevail successfully. I mean, we're, we're assuming that, you know, you, you're, you're carrying your gun, that you're ready and prepared and willing to use it. And you might, I mean, it's one thing to have the skills to shoot that gun effectively in that moment. But it also, we want to make sure that we know how to actually fight from cover and use cover where it's, where it's available. So, the new Fighting From Cover video course. Learn more about it at fightingfromcover.com. All right. And then also we encourage you to check out, while you're at it, Guardian Nation. Guardiannation.com is where you can learn more about what Guardian Nation is. We hope that you'll join us in the nation for all of the amazing benefits that are a part of that. Check it out. Again, guardiannation.com. All right. Let's jump into it, Matthew. For sure. So... Um, Recently, you know, ironically enough, I was at a, I say ironic because I was at a three-gun match uh, where I'm shooting semi-automatic pistol, a semi-automatic AR-15. And uh, actually, I I was in the two-gun division, so I didn't take my shotgun with me. But, uh, you know, here I'm shooting these two, arguably, depending on who you ask, (laughs) high-capacity semi-automatic weapons, uh, firearms. And they, they weren't being used in the context as weapons, of course, during a match. And, uh, you know, I'm watching 300 other competitors doing the same thing, enjoying themselves immensely and doing it safely, right? And Saturday morning, we, we get the word that, hey, there's this, this shooting that took place mm-hmm. in El Paso. Uh, which happened uh, primarily at a Walmart. Started initially, it sounds like, in the parking lot of that Walmart. Uh, the shooter sh- began shooting people in the parking lot as he worked his way towards the entrance and then went into the Walmart where he commenced uh, you know, further shooting. And uh, you know, unfortunately from that, 22 people dead, a bunch of others wounded. And I'm like, man, you know, not cool, right? And uh, so I was on my mind Saturday. Finish shooting the match, and I wake up Sunday morning, and I get that alert again. Another shooting, this time Dayton, Ohio, happened early, early in the morning, uh, Sunday. And uh, you know, and this one also kind of a public, public area, right? A lot of it happened kind of outside, outside of a bar. Um, and uh, now, to just kind of. Give it, you know, we're not trying, I'm not trying to get too much into the weeds on the specific details of these different events. 
And frankly, there's a lot of details that still have yet to, you know, fully be realized because there's an investigation going on in both cases. But what we know is a lot of casualties from both events, both committed by single shooters, both those shooters using, uh, well, I was going to say, basically they're both using carbines, right? So one's an AK style, one was an AR, apparently a pistol. That's beside the point. doesn't really matter. And, uh, Sorry, I like got something in my mouth here, like a hair or something I'm trying to deal with. That's <laughs> kind of weird, right? I'm trying to talk in the microphone. I got a hair in my mouth. Um, and then, you know, so, and then police response in both cases, very fast. Uh, the Walmart one was like six minutes. And the Dayton, Ohio one, very, very fast, like a minute mm-hmm. or, you know, like 90 seconds. It was it was very, 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 very fast. And they, they got him put down pretty quickly, which was very good to see. But here's the thing we have to realize, right? Uh, Because we know this from these two incidents, as we know it from all, virtually all other incidents that have gone before, is that a lot of damage can be done in a very short window. I think the average active shooting event, you know, where the actual killing is being done is, is down to around six or seven minutes right now at this point per event. So, Virtually all of the damage is done in the first, you know, within less, it's less than 10, 10 minutes, right? And then the average time I believe it takes for the first 911 call to be made is about four minutes. And then police response, I think is again, some around seven or eight minutes or something like that. Okay. So we're talking averages here now in both cases with these shootings that took place in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio, uh, in terms of the calls to 911 and the police response, they both, they beat the averages, which is great, but we still have a bunch of people dead. So even when everything goes about as well as it possibly could have, as it relates to first responder response, because that's basically what happened in both these cases. It, it basically went as well as it possibly could have. What do we what do we stand to learn from this, Matthew? Is you are on your own. You are your own best defense, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you as a concealed carrier and also as a former cop, what what do you take from that? At, you know, in your own personal concealed carry and personal defense plan. Yeah, I think there's a lot to, I mean, that that whole topic can get really deep. But I think in general, what it means to me is that everybody is responsible for their own safety. And that's not to say that, you know, you or I or somebody, you know, that's listening to this who's a concealed carrier can't intervene on somebody else's behalf. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we can't rely on a fellow concealed carrier for our own protection. And we can't rely solely on the police for our own protection. Everybody has their role to fill. And if you choose to intervene on somebody else's behalf, great. There's a gun there. Maybe, you know, the response is uh, uh, under that average where the police respond, right? But um, you can't, you can't say, well, there's so many concealed carriers in my state or I'm an, uh, you know, we don't, we have a constitutional carry law. So there's probably a lot of people out there that are carrying guns. So, you know, you know, I might not have to carry mine or if, you know, my wife goes out, you know, she, she doesn't have to, because there's a lot of armed people, good, good people out there there. That might be totally true, but it's still your responsibility. It's still her responsibility because you can't point the finger once you're dead. You know, and, and if it, it, it all boils to your personal responsibility, I think. Yeah. And pers- you know, when I say you're on your own, I mean, th- this is also true even in the law enforcement context, the, the first responder, because, you know, the, the tactics for up until Columbine, and I arguably past Columbine, because it takes time for departments and agencies to change and update training. But, you know, for sure up to Columbine, it was oh, crap, we've got something really bad going on inside this building or this place, this space, whatever. And, uh, you know, we, we got to get, we got to get SWAT team. We got to get the SWAT team here. So we get, they get SWAT there. Well, SWAT t- takes some time to mobilize. They got to get special gear. They got to get, you know, the right people, uh, equipment, et cetera. They get there, they get all geared up, body armor, head to toe, 
get their their firearms, their you know their ARs or MP5s, whatever. And then finally, they're going to make you know a breach after they've come up with a plan. What's the best way to breach, right? And so we know that that, that didn't work very well in Columbine, and it hasn't worked in, very well in a number of events. Because again, how much time does it take to do most of the damage? Less than 10 minutes, right? And so the, the, it has shifted now to where a solo police response well, actually, before before that, there was, actually, there was this approach, and th- this is still being taught fairly commonly. Uh, I come across it from time to time where it's like, okay, first three or four officers on scene, you are now the team. You are now the entry team. You are now going to go find, hunt, and kill the shooter or take him down, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's still we still see incidents where officers show up on scenes, and there's three or four of them standing around. While they're trying to figure out, okay, all right, we got the team. Now, what are we going to do? No, there's there's no planning in, in events like this. We're talking again, active shooters, active killers, right? There's no plan for that. There just isn't. You go to where you hear gunfire, and you locate adversary as fast as you can, and you take him down. There's no planning for that. Think about it. when 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 SEAL team you know, six or whatever goes to get Osama, right? They're, they're going to use a variety of technologies and all sorts of things to figure out what's the layout of the compound, what's the layout of the structure, where do we think he's going to be, what other intelligence do we have? And they're going to spend weeks and weeks, maybe months even, making sure that they have everything in place and all the contingencies in place to, and then rehearse again and again and again to then go execute that mission and take a, take a really bad dangerous dude out. You don't plan for something that's happening in the moment. There just is no plan. So you respond and react. Now, the reason I'm talking about all this is because the tactics, particularly by mass killers, I think have evolved, right? They're going for maximum penalty, maximum shock, maximum death. And so they're, they're choosing tools that allows that, you know, that enables that to take place locations that enhance that, which is what? We're looking for a lot of people in a relatively confined space and where we feel is probably a a relatively low chance of immediate confrontation, somebody that can't take me down because I want what? I want maximum shock, I want maximum effect, I want maximum press and exposure and all that. Because most of these guys, as I've been doing quite a bit of studying of the active killer mentality, is they feel slighted in some way by society typically or by certain classes of people. They feel disrespected. They feel alienated, like they don't matter to to society and that they want whatever point to get across to the rest of us. They want that to be heard. Well, how can they be heard? They are heard when they get maximum you know, maximum effect, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to change our tactics and evolve as well. Uh, That means you are your own best defense and don't count on anybody else to be there to back you up. You, if you, I mean, if Jacob were here, he'd be saying, well, my first priority is to get my, me and my family out. That is fair. At the same time, there's probably times where you can't necessarily do that with surety, no, you know, with and knowing you're gonna, you're gonna going to succeed in doing that, unless you can actually, unless you really know where this shooter is and you know about where he's going and you know that you got a clear exit point. Um, I'm my mentality is a little bit different than Jacob's. We know that we've established that before on the podcast. And I want to hear more from you on this too, Matthew. But but I'm more of a hunter. Mm-hmm. I just know that that's just what's in me. I sense it. Okay. I've not been in one of these situations, but that's just when crap has hit the fan before in various situations, I just step up, you know, and jump in. There's no shirking responsibility. It's just, that's just the way I'm wired. And I'm intent on hunting and taking out whoever this threat is. That's, that's, that's who I am. And I know that I'm going to have to do that alone. So moving quickly moving towards that threat, having that gun ready, right, at the appropriate time. Uh, we don't want to be mistaken as being a shooter. So that's something we've got to be cautious of, right? 
and then using cover and things like that effectively so we can hide ourselves as we are trying to make that approach as we're trying to look for that opportunity to make that kill shot um, or whatever, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. Anyway, a lot of stuff we can go into and in, 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 including great depth, but I just wanted to kind of set the tone and paint the picture of what mass killings look like in our day and age. And that if we're going to make a difference in these, it requires immediate violent response. Yeah, uh, I, I think you covered a lot and you, you hit on a lot of good points. And I think to, a couple things that I think um, I'd like to mention is that you kind of you kind of um, touched on it is that we in order for us to have a uh, appropriate response, we have to understand what the motivations of these shooters are and, and why it's different than somebody who goes and kills their spouse or somebody who has a, an, an intended target. When, when these mass shootings, the intended target is anybody in that area. It's not a specific person and they will not stop because they kill two people and say, that's good enough. Their goal, like you said, is to get as much notoriety, get their name out there. So whatever ideology they're espousing becomes newsworthy um, and, and they, they, they're wired different. And so for us to respond to that kind of person is way different than somebody who's robbing you, possibly, you know, some, some junkie who's robbing you for your, you, you know, your, your wallet, completely different. There's, you know, you cannot negotiate with these people. It needs to be a violent attack or a violent counterattack. Um, and, and it has to be immediate. And so um, what you were talking about as far as like different police responses and everything, you know, most people think that the police are going to come and save them. And as, as noble as that idea is, is the, and the police want to do that, um, they're human as well. And they're, they're restrained by, you know, the number of their, that are on duty, how quickly they can get to the place, how quickly they can locate. And for the people that are on that scene, the ability for them to attack right away and, and disrupt the, the plan of the attacker is crucial. And so, um, you know, understanding that it's not just, it's, it's not just um, these people are just, you know, oh, well, I'm angry at my ex-wife, so I'm going to go kill her. These people want to kill people, other human beings. And, 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 to indiscriminately kill somebody, human beings, is much different than if you have a motive against a certain person. I'm not saying that's correct. I'm just saying in the heat of the moment, you can hate somebody and do something wrong to that person up into killing them. But to go into a random place where you know nobody, but you just kill them indiscriminately, totally different mindset. And we have to understand that so we can better be prepared um, mentally ourselves. And you, you talked about you know, the, the, the notion that my first responsibility is getting my family out. And, and, and that's totally legitimate. And anybody who would say, you know, you have to respond is, is just not being genuine. I think um, everybody has their own response, but it's times like this where we're sitting after a, an incident and looking at it and saying, what would I do in this situation? Or what was, what is it going to take me to get involved in a shooting and, and, and what are my skills and, and, and are my skills going to keep me alive? Do I, do I understand the, the, the reality of what this is outside of the gun range, outside of my sub-second draw and you know, my perfect trigger squeeze? Do I under, truly understand what it's going to take me to put my life on the line and, and when I may be able to get out of this building? And I think that's where we have to think uh, critically uh, before, before we even talk about how are we ta tactic tactically going to respond. Just mentally, we have to understand. So, yeah. Hope I, I hope that made sense. Absolutely, man. <laughs> um, so, so a couple of things you touched on that, that I want to flush out just a little bit more. First of all, again, I, I really do think that uh, for a lot of these shooters, uh, they are looking for notoriety. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know that fame is even the right word. It's more like, you know, they, they know they're going to be enshrined in the history books, 
right? Because almost without exception, most of these active, most of these mass killers have studied the the, the other mass killers that have gone before them. Yes. We're seeing that come out with, you know, information about the Dayton, Ohio killer that, uh, you know, that he was researching things like that. That is, that is so typical. So many of these guys are familiar with who's gone before. They're familiar with their tactics. They're familiar with what they achieved. Some of them are even looking to one-up one up each other. I'll bet I could do it better. I'll bet I could do it faster. I'll bet I could do it more deadlier. And, uh, you know, because they're looking for that notoriety. Because notoriety for them probably equates to, ah, finally now they see me. Right. Finally, now they respect me. Finally, now I have been heard. You know, it's not uncommon for manifestos and things to be written. We're seeing that, you know, from, from this as well. Uh, both, or excuse me, especially in the case of the El Paso shooter, and I'm not uh, up to speed on this particular point with the Dayton one, but I know in the case of the El Paso one, that he's influenced by the Christchurch New Zealand shooter. That didn't happen that long ago. Right, and we we did a whole episode talking about that. Um, you know, meaning that that he's researched that, he's watched the video, right, and that clearly is a uh, is a point of inspiration for him, and that is so typical as well. So they're looking for the notoriety, they're looking for that exposure, and yet we see media talk incessantly for days and weeks and months, mentioning their names all across the interwebs and, and the airwaves. Uh, I can only imagine that the Christchurch shooter, that this El Paso shooter, of course, the Dayton one, he's, he, you know, the cops got him. He's, he's dead. And there are others. I can only imagine they're sitting behind bars right now. I guarantee you they're aware of the conversation that's taking place. I guarantee you they're aware of the media coverage and that they're probably sitting there going, I accomplished my mission. And, and these guys are cowards too. So if they can do it and be and survive, some of them, wow, all the better, because then they can relish in the joy of what they accomplished. And then there are those two that are also suicidal, uh, where you know I, I suspect that there's plenty of them that would probably, if it came to it, would commit suicide if given the opportunity or the chance. Um, but hey, I didn't have to go through with that, so that's cool too. But there's plenty of you know active or mass killers that have uh, committed suicide at the first sign of, of being countered with force, right? And so we have to realize that, that that's one of the reasons why it's so important. That's why single officer response has become, is becoming the current mode mm-hmm. for officer response because the faster you can counter these guys, in a good percentage of the cases, they're going to end the fight by committing suicide. Or they're not going to be, you know, put up much of a fight and you're going to take them down. Or uh, they'll, they're, they'll, they'll try to put up a fight, but they're just not that good. I mean, how about the shooter in, uh, uh, was that the one in Dallas? The guy, right, that uh, everybody kind of made fun of him because of his poor tactics and also some of his poor gear selection. Right. This is the one where he fired outside of uh, some government building, right, you know, and never made entry, never really accomplished anything, and, and, and cops were able to take him down, right? Um, because some of them are, in fact, not very well-trained or well-prepared. So anyway, besides all of that, uh, I'm curious, Matthew, I mean, we have taken the, the stance now on the podcast for a while to not mention names of killers, to not give them the notoriety that they desire. Now, obviously, I, I guess it could be argued that in talking about these sorts of things that we're still doing that to some extent, that they know who they are. But you know, we're not ABC News and, and you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, our goal is to help our listeners be a little bit better, better prepared for this kind of, you know, situation should it occur. But I mean, what are your thoughts on, I mean, do you think that there is correlation uh, as far as this, uh, this contagion is concerned? You know, this, this contagion theory that by doing all the media coverage of these mass killing events that you know, is just further exacerbating the problem that it's encouraging others to go and commit their own act of terror? You know, I think that that's a legitimate thought. And I think that it does, it does um, affect some of these shooters. Maybe some of them would still do it 
maybe some of them would be less violent or seeing other uh, shooters be, you know, kind of become infamous um, and, and they want that. Um, I think that's a part of it. I think the other part of it is that by doing this and by uh, with, with all the kind of rhetoric and all the kind of, you know, negative stuff that you see on, on the news, the news is, I mean, I didn't take a percentage poll, but I would say 90% of what I see on the news is negative stuff and not just negative stories. I'm talking about like very divisive take on a specific topic, right? And then if you go on, uh, on, you know, Facebook, YouTube, any of those things, every comment is very, very divisive. Like somebody will be, you know, selling Hey, you know, I'm giving away free, uh, apple pies, uh, come on, come on over today. And somebody will say, Oh, well, I was there yesterday and you weren't giving them or I'm allergic to apples, you know, thanks a lot. And so like, they'll take the simplest good thing and turn it negative. So I think that that, and, and the lack of like really, um, love for another human that you don't know and understanding that that person is a human being and, and allows us to kind of start treating each other um, improperly. And all that starts to, to, to boil down to the fact that like you have people that feel that they are no longer part of society, right? Like, and so there, there's no, I guess without sounding like a hippie, we need to love each other. We need to invest in one another. Even if that person, you don't know that person and they might not be particularly nice to you or believe in the same things as you do, because that person may be the next person who snaps because they have no one to talk to. And I'm not saying that, you know, if they only would have talked to this guy, he wouldn't have shot. No, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not naive like that. What I'm saying is that in general, the, the attitudes of humans, of our, our, our people against or to one another need to be um, much more understanding. We, we try to, you know, pride ourselves on being this intellectual uh, society that, you know, we didn't do that. We did that in the, in the past. We're smarter now, but yet we continue to marginalize people and divide people on stuff that is just stupid, right? It's, we divide people on the color of their skin. Why? We divide each other on the, the, the accent or the, the, the language that they speak, or if you voted for a Democrat or Republican, who cares? Like that, that is so inconsequential when you look at the human being as a person and we're not doing that. And so I think that just sets up a, a, an environment that is very hateful or very us versus them type thing. And it's much easier to harm people that you don't care about or that you think are beneath you or not like you. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I, I probably went off on a tangent, but I think that th those things uh, definitely affect how often and, and how these shooters decide to do what they're going to do. Yep. Um, so there, I saw a, uh, a comment, uh, actually from somebody who, uh, I think it was David. He said something about, did you see the cell, some of the cell phone video footage, uh, from the Walmart attack and Hey, you know, where that was shot from, maybe that would have been a, a, a safe place that, or a good place to shoot the shooter from or something. And, and that may very well be right. But here's an interesting thing I want to ask you, Matthew is, you know, we see so many, incidents, and I, I'm talking violent incidents of all kinds, whether it's just simple beatings on the street, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, a robbery in a store. Uh, I'm, re I'm reminded of that incident in Seattle or Portland that we covered on the podcast once upon a time, the guy that had the knife, he had stabbed his estranged wife or girlfriend or something, right? And the concealed carrier was just kind of like backing away from him. Yeah. With his gun drawn, you know, and ultimately it was resolved, uh, you know, and, and the concealed carrier was, was none the worse, you know, for wear, but, uh, uh, you know, but we have all these people like standing around like videotaping and stuff. And, and really what that is, is, is that's people that are failing to act, you know, in a scary, dangerous, violent situation. And I know that many of us are probably sitting here thinking, well, gosh, if I had been in that Walmart and I had had my gun, I would have drawn my gun and I would have taken this guy out. Um, maybe, maybe, or, or you might've uh, actually not, you might've stood by. Uh, and by, I don't mean like stand by, like, 
I mean, maybe you never know the people, there are people that do freeze in situations like this. Um, I've read an interesting article recently and I can't remember where or who wrote it. I was actually trying to find it again. And they talked about how the more factors um, that are available to you to sort of justify your lack of action, the more likely you are to, to not act. Does that make sense? So, so, you know, if it, the, the, the more opportunities that you can stand by or be in denial or, you know, not get involved because, oh, somebody else has already taken care of it or somebody will take care of it or whatever it is, then the, li- the less likely you are to act. And so, you know, I want to see more people carrying their guns. I want to see more people taking courses and getting training and being better prepared to, to, to act when it counts. Um, the reality is that's the only way that I think we can increase our chances of resolving situations like this faster and uh, saving lives. Uh, it doesn't mean that, every, you know, in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, I, I've seen comments like, hey, how could this be a Walmart in Texas where everybody, everybody in Texas carries a gun. That's not true, but you know, definitely there's a, a large percentage of people compared to certain demographics and locations across the country. That, that is generally true that Texas Texans are carrying their guns. And this is a Walmart, which based on the photographic evidence, we often see of people many times being made fun of <laughs> in Walmarts. Uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's it's Walmart in Texas. Where, where were the guns? How come there was nobody there to put an end to this faster and sooner? And I would actually say that there probably was somebody or multiple people in that store that were armed. And as to why they didn't act, I don't know. But maybe they, you know, but it appears they did not. And that happens. Uh, and that's okay. I mean, it's, 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 it's okay that I'm not trying to judge those people. Okay. Um, it's not okay that this terrible thing happened and maybe something could have been done about it. And that's where I think we have the opportunity to bolster our own mindset, to strengthen our skills, to recommit and become more determined at practicing um, our, our current level of skill and improving and getting better and educating ourselves about situations like this about these these kind of mass killings and and other situations and, and how we might be able to um, respond effectively in those kind of cases and, and again keep in mind this kind of situation is different it is different than you being faced with an armed robber okay or a home invasion okay this is an active killer somebody that's already shown he's because he's in the act of doing so that he's willing to kill people is actively pressing the trigger and doing so or he's doing it with a knife whatever but, but obviously we're we're kind of we're focused on the shooter side of things here and that's okay um you know it, it's not going to be probably probably it's not going to be up close and in your face you know so much so we, we talk about this the statistics about you know, armed robberies and home invasions and all these things and how so many of these incidents occur with within seven yards or less, you know, 90 plus percent of them or whatever. Uh, active shooter is probably going to be a greater distance because there's a good chance you can't get closer to make that shot because you will be putting yourself at far too, too great of risk, right? Mm-hmm. And so your skill level has got to be even different and better in different ways at, at greater distances and so forth. Um, and probably like you, I've probably gone on off into, you know, somewhat of a, of a tangent, but uh, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts, Matthew, about kind of some of what I, you know, let me resummarize this as far as, you know, what about situations where people choose not to act or freeze and, and what can we do? Do you think to, to maybe not be in that category of people and then also skill set wise, what do you think are some of the things that we need to be certain that we can do to have a maximum uh, chance for, chances for success? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just hit this one up front and it may not sound good, but you don't know necessarily what you're going to do until you have been faced with that 
a similar situation. What I mean is you don't have to be involved in a mass shooting to know what you're going to respond like. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you in, in training, you know, I was a platoon sergeant. We're in the infantry. We're, we're, I'm training Marines and we get over to Iraq. And, the, and sometimes the dudes that I thought were going to be like awesome, like I wouldn't have, I just have to direct them and they would already be setting up positions, knowing where their sectors of fire are and everything um, freeze. And then the dudes that you thought were the biggest dummies, you know, that, that you're going to get us killed because you're so dumb. Those guys are like snapped in and all of a sudden they're, they're doing everything they should be. So it, it's difficult to say that, you know, I know exactly what I'm going to do if I'm in Walmart and I hear shooting three lanes over. It's difficult to say. It doesn't mean that you're going to be told, you, you can't, part, you can't uh, anticipate or try to train or, or prepare yourself. I think preparing your mind, we, we focus all, all, oftentimes on the mechanics of squeezing the trigger and sight alignment, sight picture and grip and all this stuff. Um, but we, we miss the workup before that even happens. Cause that's the ultimate, like, that's when you actually decided to respond. Right. But what, com- what, what pushes you over the envelope, like you said, or over the line between, I see a door here, I see, I hear fire on the other side of the building. I could leave, I have a firearm, or am I going to go and pursue this person? I don't know if he's killing people. I don't know. I don't know if there's multiple people. What am I going to do? I think that's where we need to start and say, what are the, what are the parameters or what are the situations that I would risk my life for? And what's it going to take for me to get engaged in this? I mean, I, I, I think it's different when I have my daughter with me. She's six years old, right? So I'm probably, my response is going to be a little different if I have my daughter there. If it's an active shooter and I see that it's an active shooter, I have to, I, I mean, I'm going to have to respond, right? But if I'm standing by a door and I, I hear some domestic argument back there, uh, I'm probably not going to go back there and get involved right? If I have my daughter, if I don't, maybe I do go back. It, it, it just situationally dependent, but it's going, there's going to be little series of like, like you said, um, when you don't react, there's certain things that are, are triggering you not to react, right? Like confirmation, like, uh, I can't believe this is happening. Well, maybe it's too dangerous. Maybe I should just leave. I'm not sure if I'm legally allowed to even carry a gun in here. So you start thinking of things to keep you from reacting. I think also we have to think about what are the things that are going to get you to react? Like you see somebody getting shot, you see multiple people getting shot. Um, those are like two red flags right there. If, If I'm in vicinity of some people being shot, I'm going to respond. If I may not know the situation and it's maybe a robbery or somebody's holding up, you know, holding a gun, maybe I don't get involved right away until I'm not saying I have to wait till the person dies, but I'm saying it may take a little bit more for me to get involved. So I think we, we kind of prepare ourselves for that. I think we have to start talking like, um, about different techniques, um, and, and not, not, I don't want to say tactics because often, you know, you hear tactics and then everybody's like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I have to wear tack gear and all this. I'm just saying how your response is, your response considerations, like how am I going to proceed down this aisle or do I go down the main aisle? Do I go down the side aisle? Do I stay in the middle of the, vi-? you know, for me, I probably go on the perimeter of the building trying to find, because once you're in the middle, you don't know, you could be on one side or other, but if I'm on one side, I know, you know, the shooter's got to be on the other side. So I can start, start kind of figuring out where that is and I can formulate a response. So I think it's all those little things that, you know, we do that some people might be like, Oh, you're so paranoid and you're always, but it's not paranoia. It's just, I think it's just good sense to, to have that uh, kind of in your back pocket in case something happens. And, you know, Walmarts are Walmarts, you know, big department stores are big department stores. They might be arranged a little differently, but if the trigger things are the same and the way you kind of move through a building is the same, then, you know, it, it, it takes up a lot and it, it can give you a good starting point. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good thoughts, Matthew. Seriously. You know, it's, it's a question that I think is, is a really good one to consider, you know, as far as, I mean, you brought up a good point as far as serving with guys in the military and the Marines 
that you expected would respond a certain way and then didn't, and then maybe the ones that you didn't expect to step up uh, did. And, and I was just thinking through all of that, that I think a big determining factor is it, we can't always take people at their word, right? Because there are guys that'll, and, and gals that will talk tough. This is what I'm going to do. This is how awesome I am. I've trained to do this, blah, 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 blah. But just because what they say is one thing doesn't necessarily mean that's actually how they feel internally. And only you can know where you are at. Um, and I think that the mindset is that you're not going to give up no matter what, that you're going to fight no matter the the odds, no matter how bad it is, no matter how scary it is, like your focus is winning and prevailing, right? Um, and, and only you can, like I said, really truly know where your mindset set is at. Uh, so a couple things. I just wanted to talk real quick. Uh, wanted to clarify a few things too here. So we, we did this article last year, uh, last fall, I think it was, uh, basically, the title is something along the lines of armed citizens are successful 94% of the time at active shooter events. And uh, there's a lot of work that went into this. It's on our site. If you want a uh, short link, you can go to concealedcarry.com forward slash active shooter study. Concealedcarry.com forward slash active shooter study. That'll get you to it. And I just want to point out a couple of things. Okay, so so often when we hear about these mass shootings, people are quick to point out, hey, you know, got to get rid of these gun-free zones. Now, I don't disagree, by the way, with the premise of we need to get rid of gun-free zones. But uh, there's, this, there's this thought pattern that most of the time these happen in gun-free zones, which according to our research is actually a bit of a fallacy because it's only about 37.8% of shootings in the last 20 years have happened in gun-free zones. Uh, about 40%, 41%, are places where we don't know that they were gun-free zones or not. And a lot of times it's because they happen in workplaces, offices, office environments, stores, different things where, where maybe it's not as clear what the actual gun policy is. There's a good chance that a big chunk of those are probably not necessarily declared as gun-free zones. So they're probably guns allowed areas. Um, but one thing that was interesting in our research, we did show that, 77.8% of events with eight or more deaths. So very, very deadly mass shootings. Uh, so almost 80% of the ones with the worst deaths were those occurred in gun-free zones. So I, so there is there does seem to be some sort of correlation that when a shooting happens in a place where people are less likely to obviously have a gun, have the ability to have a weapon and the means to defend themselves, then the death toll is going to be vastly higher, right? So that, that's kind of interesting to, to note. But the, the big thing that came out of this study from our research was that 94% of the time that an armed citizen was present where an active shooting is taking place, they were successful. And we defined success in cases where they either stopped that shooter outright or they discouraged or slowed down that shooter. So that it resulted in, in them basically saving lives. Okay. But if you really want to know, 76% of the time, 75.8% to be precise, armed citizens present at active shooting events were able to actually stop or have an effect on stopping the shooter. Okay, whatever that, whether that was him committing suicide or they were they actually, you know, shot and stopped him, doesn't matter. So um, I wanted to make sure that we're clear on what the data actually shows. Here's one other thing I want to point out. And I'd like to get kind of your response on, on this, Matthew, as well. Uh, so often we talk about how, you know, well, mental health issue and there's all these things, right? But, but here's, here's an interesting statistic. Only 25% of killers had, have been previously diagnosed with a mental illness. What do you take away from that? Yeah, it, I think, and this is, this is a, a touchy topic with a lot of people is the mental illness part, right? And, and I think there's a difference between, I, I mean, psychopathy, obviously, or being a psychopath is, I, 
classified as a mental illness, I, you know, but oftentimes we think about, well, if somebody's depressed, that means they're going to go shoot somebody. Or if they're schizophrenic and they're off their meds, that makes them so violent. Or if they have PTSD, they should never be around guns because, you know, who knows what they're going to do. And those types of things are damaging because there's no study and, and the, the, there's no evidence that shows that people with mental illness like schizophrenia or uh, PTSD or depression are any more likely to go out and commit a mass shooting or kill people. Um, it's just not true. Um, so I think that the issue is, is once we start classifying everything as a mental illness and everything prohibiting a gun ownership, if you have a mental illness, people start saying, stop reporting that they they're, they're scared to go and get help just from a counselor. Like, Oh, I, I just got a divorce with my wife and I'm, I'm depressed. Well, is that mental illness? Yeah. You're prescribed, you know, antidepressants for six months or something, but then you work through it and, and you're fine. But somebody's probably not going to go and seek help if they believe, well, I'm going to lose all my guns or I'm going to be classified as a mental case. And, and, and so I think that part, part of it pushes people kind of into the shadows that, may be able to, to seek help. Um, and you know, it, it is, it's disturbing because a lot of these people are very intelligent. Like some of the shooters, not all of them, but some of the mass shooters, mass, mass killers, they're intelligent people, you know, serial killers, they're intelligent people. A, a lot of times, not, not in the, in, you know, wisdom, but intelligent as far as how they prey on their victims, how they trick people, how they, you know, how they read people. They're very good at reading people. So it's not like these people are just walking zombies. Um, and so I think we have to be careful by saying, you know, well, it's only a mental, mental health issue, guns, gun violence or whatever they say. And it's, it, there's a mental health aspect. Yeah, there is. Um, but I think we have to be understanding that not everything that's considered a mental illness, depression or anxiety or something like that is correlates to, you know, increased, um, violence or, or potential for violence. So I think it, that's part of the conversation we have to have. Right. But, and I think that's in general, not just related to gun violence. I think there's far too many people who are depressed. In, in the United States, far too many people on antidepressants. Why? Well, that's the question we should be asking. Why, why, why are so many people depressed and so angry and, 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 and so willing to go out and kill their fellow human? That's the thing we have to talk about. Not like, well, you know, if he wouldn't have had 30 round magazines or a drum magazine, you know, four people would have, four more people would survive. Yes, that's, that's important. But What's causing these people to do this? What's causing people to get one of the comments in the Facebook is, uh, uh, I think he said there was another, uh, another shooting over a parking space. Michael said in Alabama, he believes, I mean, what causes somebody to shoot somebody over an argument in a parking space? It it can't be a, it can't be a mentally balanced person that does that. And it doesn't necessarily mean they have a mental disorder. They have a disorder of the heart. They have a disorder of society, I think. And so that's where I think we need to focus. Well, you know, I I made a post yesterday on my, on my personal page, uh, you know, that, that it's not the mental health, it's the emotional health. That's the problem. Yes. Uh, And my point there is, and I I realized that emotions are what we emote, we emit, you know, we, we put out emotions as kind of a sign of what's going on internally, right? Mentally and all that stuff. I get that. My point was that, See, I, I look at the example you just gave, Matthew, as far as why did this guy shoot somebody over a parking space, you know, and so many things like that, similar things have happened. And I look at it and I go, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons, right? But the one thing's for sure is that I sense that a lot of people lack, uh, lack self-control over their emotions, that, that society today is far more impulsive, mm-hmm. right? And just reactive, you know, reacts to things that they don't like and reacts and goes way too far because there's that lack of self-control. And then that's, that's an emotional health thing. We, we, you know, if we were all, if we never learned how to mature and keep our emotions in check, we'd still be running around acting like a bunch of two-year-olds, right? <laughs> exactly. Think about how, how a two-year-old behaves. Everything is mine, mine, mine. 
you took that, so I'm going to beat you up for it, right? And if you get in trouble, you pass the blame or you point the finger, yeah. you don't take responsibility, and you make excuses. And so part of maturity is learning how to manage those emotions, keep them in check, and be grown-ups. But when we have people acting out in, in a really, really bad, terrible way by shooting up um, stores and churches and schools and things like that, I mean, that's a sign of someone that, uh, and, and it's, it's deeper than that. I get that. Like, but, it, but it's a sign of, of a serious problem with emotional health and I think a, a problem of, of love and relationships. I mean, you talked about you didn't want to sound like a hippie, but I think there's some truth to that. Um, and I do think, by the way, like the Virginia Tech shooter, by the way, I think, I think uh, if you were talking to his family, because I was reading about him uh, the other day, and if you were to talk to his family, I bet you they would just say, hey, he was just always was, there was something weird about him. Like he was just off. Like he just, he didn't respond in social settings the way, you know, we would have expected him to. Our other kids are normal, but he just turned out this way, you know, like, so you can't even like blame it necessarily on a, on a, on the, on a parent per se. Um, but, uh, but there's still something there. Now, by the way, he actually had some legitimate mental health issues, Correct. right? Yeah. That there were some warning signs and some things that were, that were treated to a point and then other things that were missed and, and a lack of follow-up and follow-through. But my point being is that someone doesn't do what he does if, or any of these guys do, if they have love right. in them for, for other people. And how do we have love for other people? We have love, be, partly it's the way we're brought up, right? And uh, also it's because of love that people express to, to us, right? And because and, and, I do think that it's something that reciprocates. Um, we have always said, we obviously you have to choose to reciprocate it. So, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not so naive to think that I can run over to Syria or, you know, Iran or, <laughs> I, or whatever. I'd be like, Hey guys, let's just have love and everything will be fine. No, they'll shoot me dead as soon as I step, step foot off the plane. But, um, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that culturally there is something to that. And I sense that with the way we become disconnected, um, the way we're so dependent on, on our media and our, on our media devices, uh, that that further removes that connection and it exacerbates the problem. Because I do think there's people that are naturally inclined to be, um, you know, to be a little bit socially awkward or to not get along with their social peers. But uh, when, you, when you throw into the mix of that, the bombardment of media, social media, video games. And I don't say video games are a cause of this stuff, but when you add, this is like adding fuel to a fire. So where you have somebody that's already a little bit, maybe more inclined or capable of doing these kind of kinds of heinous acts, then you throw these other things to it. And it's, it's sort of like throwing fuel on the fire. Right. Yeah. And totally. it just makes it worse, potentially worse. Um, and again, it doesn't happen for every person in every case. It's like there's so many things that are really actually honestly hard to predict about these kind of cases. So there's a really great, and I'll try to make sure I put this in the show notes of the, of the uh, uh, podcast episode. Uh, it was a really great study put out from the FBI in June 2018 called a study of the, of the pre-attack behaviors of active shooters in the United States. And I'm just going to read for you a couple of kind of key points and highlights from this that I think uh, are, are, are really interesting to consider. And uh, I would encourage you to go read this because th this I think is really important to us being able to potentially stop other attacks before they occur, right? So again, a study of the pre-attack behaviors of active shooters. So what led them to that point? What led up to that point? What sorts of things did they do or did they express before they committed the act? Now, some interesting statistics that, that are included in this. Uh, most killers obtain their guns legally, okay? Just so 75% of them obtain their firearms legally for the purpose of, of carrying out their, their attack. Um, active killers usually spend a long time planning their attacks. 77% planned it for at least a week. Many of them planned it for one to two months before the attack. So there's planning going on. And so there's obviously that's going to mean that there's things happening beforehand, stockpiling of, and I'm not saying buying a bunch of ammunition is necessarily by itself a bad thing, 
But when you have someone that maybe you think is, he seems a little bit off his rocker and yet he's buying 10,000 rounds of ammo, you know, like that, that's, again, that's kind of like, this doesn't necessarily cause or lead me to think that this first person is going to do X, Y, Z thing, but we have to put all these factors together, right? Planning means they are planning, they're acquiring resources, equipment, tools, et cetera. Um, only 25% of killers had been previously diagnosed with mental illness. We just talked about that. Um, shooters generally displayed recognizable warning signs before the attack. The FBI study found that on average, each active shooter examined displayed four to five concerning behaviors over time. About one in three had made threats or confronted people they later targeted. More than half of them revealed their intentions to do something violent, a phenomenon called leakage. Uh, there's more to that section, by the way. It's really, it's really interesting and intriguing. At least one person in every event studied noted concerning behavior on the part of the suspect before the attack. And only 41% of those actually reported those behaviors to law enforcement. Um, 79% of the killers were acting on an actual or perceived grievance, either personal or professional. In 64% of the attacks, a specific person or group of people related to this grievance was specifically targeted before the killer continued shooting random people. That's exactly how that Dayton uh, shooting started. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, if you are familiar with the manifesto from the El Paso shooter, he had all kinds of issues with race and other things, similar to the Christchurch one. So anyway, interesting uh, study from the FBI that I think is, as I've glanced over it, uh, I need to dive into a little bit more, I think is actually really well done and, and provides some interesting things for us to think about if we are concerned at all with trying to prevent some of these things from happening before they happen. Because we could talk about the tactics side of things, you know, as far as what we might do in an active shooting event, right? But then what can we do ahead of time besides this, all this love that we've been <laughs> Uh, proliferating throughout this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you kind of hit it on the head. Like w- when we start, you know, turning off parts of our family because they voted for a person we don't like, right? And, and we sever ties with friends because they made a stupid post on for social media or whatever, um, or believe in, you know, something that we don't believe in. Um, that that that's hurtful in the long run and i think if we uh, each other see things that you know i see you're having a bad day or something and i reach out yeah like you said we're not going over to syria and giving everyone hugs and then you know everybody's singing kubaya that's not how it works but if on our own in our own sphere of influence we affect the people positively that we come into contact with then we can start to at least change maybe some of the periphery ones that feel marginalized and may go and and shoot somebody or maybe end up shooting themselves, right? Like it, it, I know we're talking about mass shootings and things like that, but it's it, 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 that ripples through everything, right? Like just treating people Absolutely. better, treating each other better. And so I think, um, you know, when you mentioned that only a quarter of them had pre-diagnosed mental illness, but showed but showed four different traits or signs of uh, violence, why are we only focusing on mental illness then? Why aren't we focusing on well, this guy, you know, beat his wife and and put his kid in a in a coma? Well, that may be a mental illness, but it might not. It might just be he's just a very evil. He has no love in his heart and he's a very brutal person, right? He might not have a mental illness, might not be diagnosed. Um, so we got to treat that and, and, and understand what, what's going on. And, so, and truthfully, some people aren't treatable, right? I mean, you can't treat them. But I think it's, we have to start getting back to personal responsibility, our responsibility for our own actions. Um, you mentioned it, that people have lack of responsibility or lack of self-control, right? We all get angry. I'm, I've been angry. I'm sure everybody's been angry and said like, man, I could punch that guy in the face or I could do this, you know, but we don't. Why? It's not because we don't have a mental illness. It's because we have personal restraint. And, and you know, what I think is, and I'll ask you, you asked me a couple questions. I'll ask you this because this, it doesn't bother me, but it makes me always question some, some things. Like when I'm watching sports and I see like, let's say somebody, 
um, block somebody's shot. And then they get in their face and they stand over top of them or something and disrespect them or, do, or, or you know, somebody says something, they push them on the, on the field. And then afterwards, they give, it, they give an interview with the person. And the guy's like, well, I'm just an emotional player. You got to understand, I'm just an emotional player. And everybody like, kind of, you know, oh, okay, that's okay. He's, that's just how he is. He's just an emotional player. He's pumped up. You know, you got to give him credit. You got to, he's an emotional guy. You know, he's fired up. Well, I mean, what if as a police officer, after I arrested somebody, you know, I, I, I spiked my like baton on the ground and was like, yeah, and started like getting the guys. That's not appropriate, <laughs> right? Because I have personal responsibility and, and, and or self-control. I think when we start saying, you know, it's okay to disrespect people because it's in a sports context, then where, what other context? Oh, you disrespect me on social media. So I'm going to lash out. He said something, you know, as I was walking by him in the mall. So I'm going to lash out. That's just how I am. I'm an emotional guy. It's like, no, you're not, you're an idiot. You're, you're, you lack self-control. That's not, that's not something to be proud about, you know? So I, I don't know, maybe it might way off base or is that something? I, I, uh, I, no, I don't think you're off base at all. Um, but I was trying to parse through that, you know, what the question was for me, because you said you were going to ask me a question, but. Uh, <laughs> I guess the question is, is like, do you think that that is a, is a example or some part of it? Or do you think I'm totally out in left field? No, I, I so yeah, I think you're, I, I definitely think that's true to, you know, I mean, to what extent it extends as far as in the, in, in the context we're talking about today, I don't know, but you know, I was thinking about like professional sports players and how many of them have had issues or trouble with violence yes, and other crimes. And, and so, I mean, there could be something to that, you know? Um, I do think that it could also be a consequence or a coincidence even of when you've got, I mean, some like take football players, for instance, pro football players, and you look at how many of them have been in trouble with various issues of violance Mm -hmm. um, up up to and including murder. And of course, you know, a number of domestic violence type issues. And I mean, it could just be that by, by nature, these guys are already violent people. Like internally, like, I mean, you play football, (laughs) you get a thrill out of hitting and crushing people, you know? (laughs) So like, you know, it's like, I don't know if, if, if the football per se is like, you know, the problem or the, just that, you know, the, the sport probably attracts people that are naturally inclined or prone to violence. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean it's an excuse for them to, and then also use feelings or emotions as an excuse to be excused from being super redundant from using violent acts. Um, so I'm definitely on board and agree with you there. So, I mean, that a part of a civilized society is that we get along and we are adults and we figure out how to keep ourselves in check. So um, what all the answers are, we don't know. But I do hope that from this conversation today in this episode, folks, that you'll take away and, from this and go, okay, there's some things I, I need to be doing personally with regards to my mindset, with regards to my firearm skills, with regards to other personal defense skills that I need to make sure that I'm more solid on. There's some things I need to be doing as far as trying to be a better human, to be good to my neighbors, to be good to my family, to reach out to those that seem like they need help. That's that's like the big thing. Like so often we see so many of these situations where like, you know, we, we hear about, well, so-and-so kind of knew something was up, but didn't report it. Or how about the uh, Parkland shooter where his classmates kind of almost joking almost in a way. I mean, they weren't joking, but it, it clearly was kind of a joke to them at one point that, well, we kind of always knew if there was going to be a shooting at our school, it was going to be him. Like that's a sign that people knew that something was wrong with, with the Parkland shooter as far as there was something about him emotionally, uh, mentally as well, perhaps, um, you know, just they, that was not a surprise to some of them that he did what he did. Right. But yet it, there was things that went unchecked and uh, opportunities to maybe stop that, that uh, didn't, ha- you know, that weren't taken advantage of um, and, and we failed, you know? So I, I keep looking at the uh, Las Vegas shooter, right? And we still don't really know his true full complete motives. He didn't really leave a whole lot behind about that, but I still can't help but wonder that there must've been some sort of warning sign ahead of time 
I mean, and because he, he was, this is something I think he was working up to and planning for a long time. There's no way you plan that for as long as he did and not have somebody somewhere notice something out of place or that isn't quite right. right. But again, I come back to like, what can we do? I think we can be better human beings. And by that, I mean, being better to those around us and that we come in contact with. Everybody needs a friend. Everybody needs to be loved and respected. Um, and that's not the answer. And it's not this, again, with all these things we've talked about, all solutions, there is no one solution to everything, but it's kind of like all these little factors that I was talking about that are like sprinkling fuel on the fire. I think there's other things, a lot of what we've talked about here today, that when you sprinkle them on, they start adding up in a big way, right? We can't say that this one thing will fix everything, but everything added up, I think will start making a difference. So that's a good place, I think, to wrap it up for today. Again, today's episode made possible by our new upcoming Fighting From Cover video training course. We encourage you to check out that and learn more at fightingfromcover.com, officially going on sale tomorrow. And I hope that you'll uh, take a look at that. Also, Guardian Nation. Uh, Guardian Nation members uh, love, I think, the benefits that come from being a member of Guardian Nation. You can learn all about those benefits at guardiannation.com. And in fact, they should have already been notified, but all Guardian Nation members are getting that fighting from cover. I shouldn't say all. Those that are qualifying members for this next box that ships this month in August uh, will be also receiving that fighting from cover video course. They'll actually be receiving the uh, electronic streaming version as well as the uh, physical DVD. So anyway, that is a wrap for the show today. Matthew, thanks for doing this with me, bud. Thank you, man. I'm glad I know we had our... uh difficulties getting uh technical stuff lined up yesterday but i'm glad we got got it going today it was a good good episode absolutely so with that we're gonna let you all go we remind you to what is the saying matthew let's see if you can do it train Train right right. train often and train safe train safe so you can fight hard fight fast and fight true I think because we like fighting. We remember the fight part better. (laughs) Training is the less fun part. So we're like, training? What's that? Anyway, yes, you got it. Train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. reminder that laws vary from place to place and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws the concealed carry podcast concealed carry inc concealed and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm related incidents and laws but things could be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this we cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast